doing? Good, how are oh, you? Yeah, fine, thank you. Good. How are you? I'm, yeah, I'm very well, cheers. Yeah. <laughs> um, let me just get my stuff on. Yeah, there's no rush at all. Okay. you feeling comfortable? Got your brew? Got my brew. Yeah. <laughs> Plenty of layers. All the layers. Jodie, what's your Kinder Scout story? Um, well, I suppose it goes back to the first time I ever come, came up here, which was, I was a kid, I don't know how old I was, probably about 10, I reckon, and I came up here with my friend and her parents, and they brought us up camping up here. So I remember, I don't know where we were, because you're a kid, aren't you? You don't know where you are. I think we probably came up from the Hayfield side, um, and we camped part way up. And I really remember kind of stopping to camp. It might have been the first time I'd ever done a kind of wild camp. And then the next day we came up to the top and I really remember that kind of classic thing of jumping off the hags and into the gullies and how much fun it was. It was kind of like playing in the snow, but it was peat. So I've got really strong memories of that kind of um, first experience of just being up somewhere quite weird um, but at the time it seemed completely kind of normal um, and yeah, I really remember that experience. And then I guess through my childhood, I came up here, I remember coming up another time from Edale side and I really remember picking the bilberries on the way up. So just those kind of childhood memories of coming to somewhere kind of quite local to where I grew up, but quite different, knowing it was the biggest mountain in the Peak District and finding yeah just kind of knowing it was quite special and quite different and then as and well and then so another memory I have of it was when I was changing careers I was a teacher but I wasn't sure if I wanted to keep teaching and I thought about doing a mountain leader course um, so I really remember coming up here with my dad who was um, happy to help me kind of um, have one of those quality mountain days that they talk about and teach me some navigation. So we came up from Edale and we navigated across the top of the plateau. Um, so kind of just um, various memories of being a, t being a, a kid and then being a, a kind of a younger person and having adventures up here. Um, and yeah, just coming to the top of the world in a way. So yeah. And then the story kind of changes because I first, af uh, after I was teaching, I was then working for the National Trust and I started hearing about the projects up here and hearing about the peatland restoration. And that story was pretty powerful for me. Um, just the whole idea that the peat contains so much carbon, that it's really vital in the fight against climate change. Um, and then and what people were doing about it and how degraded it was and not knowing that it was not knowing that that bare peat that I jumped into when I was a kid was actually a kind of complete environmental disaster. Finding out about that, finding out that it was being tackled was really inspiring for me. And so then a job came up at Moors for the Future Partnership and um, and I took it. I got it and took it and um, since then I've just learned so much and I've become kind of involved with kinder in a completely different way because talk about it all the time talk about Pete all the time and kind of it, it's 
it's kind of my world really it's certainly my professional world and a lot of my friends will testify that I go on about it out of work quite a lot as well so I was running with a friend not so long ago and we go for runs quite often together and one day she said Jodie you are more than just moss aren't you (laughs) and that kind of reflects how much I go on about moss and about peatlands and about our work and stuff like that so yeah really amazing place for me um feel like there's still a lot more to discover sometimes at work I feel like I talk about places like kinder more than I actually get to go up on them so it's nice to be up here today on kinder actually talking about it as part of work um but telling my personal story as well uh, and actually being up here st- sat in the middle of a big erosion gully in the middle of nowhere and it's pretty beautiful isn't it yeah i love that we can get a little bit of protection from the wind in these gruffs mm. and it's, it's, it does feel like a bit of a, a maze when you're walking through it <laughs> it is a maze and the only way you can kind of find your way out is by following the water i think and watching the way it flows and hoping you're going in the right direction <laughs> <laughs> so who is it would you say that's inspired you to spend time here um so i suppose you know going back to those early days it was my dad and his friends who would always you know this was kind of just one of the places to come and do stuff um and then over time i think it's become you know it's become so much part of my life through my work that um i hear about i hear stories about the work going on up here and really yeah work work has inspired me to come up here and spend time up here and kind of more recent days out up here have focused mostly on the other side of kinder on the north edge where we we went on our walk that um our guided walk that you and i met we have these um areas of we've got one area that's been left with no conservation work at all and that's so that we can compare it to the areas that have had conservation work and I've been up there quite a few times I've been really inspired to go up there by my colleagues like Tom Spencer who goes up there pretty much I think once a fortnight to take measurements and he's so passionate about the work that's gone on up there the changes he's really good at explaining the changes up there and so yeah you know colleagues really have inspired me to find out more and come up and check it out and going up to those places and seeing the difference between a place where it's been left and a place where Moors for the Future have done some work to improve it it's really really inspiring it's really cool and it just shows a kind of the different it shows what would have happened if no one had done anything it shows that what it would have been like and yeah that's really really inspiring do you think that people who are coming here to go walking know much about i know that you have the bogtastic van and you have various ways of communicating this information to people do you think that many people really know and understand and have an interest in the work that more to the future are doing 
I think it varies wildly. So I, so sometimes when I bump into people I know and they're kind of like, oh, what are you doing? You know, what, what do you do for work? And I say, oh, I work for Moors for the Future Partnership. And a lot of people haven't heard of the partnership. And that always surprises me, really. I kind of expect, like, the, t the kind of circles I tend to mix in, you know, quite outdoorsy people, people that might, you know, might well be coming up kinder um, for a day out, don't necessarily know about the work. Um, and then some people really surprise you. You might not expect them to know, and they do. So, yeah, I think it's a mixture. And I think people have different perceptions of what's happened um people have different perceptions of what is happening and it's really interesting to find out what what people have picked up along the way and yeah but i'm i'm often quite surprised about people kind of not really understand it you know that when you explain about the peat to people and ha what a huge carbon store it is some people are quite surprised um but I really think, like even so, I've been working for Moors for the Future for five years, nearly five years now. And in the last couple of years, people are really pricking their ears up about peatlands. And I think the language is interesting as well, because we talk about moors. There are so many different words. We talk about moors, we talk about bogs, we talk about blanket bog, which is the specific habitat that, that is up here, deep peat. We talk about peatlands. There's quite a lot of scope for for missing those nuances. And I've really noticed recently that the language has kind of gone towards peatlands um, and people are picking up on it. People are realising that peatlands are a big part of the carbon story and keeping or getting peatlands into a healthy condition is a huge and important part of fighting climate change. I think that's gradually becoming much more well known and things like you know we're in the first week of COP26 as we're recording this and you're hearing people talking about peatlands more and more often um, whereas a couple of years ago it was often a lot more about forests and trees and now people are saying forests and peatlands you know almost in the same sentence because it's recognized that peatlands are a huge part of that story so yeah i think people are gradually beginning to understand that and obviously peat is in lots of different places but locally around the peak district and south pennines um we have a huge store of carbon just sat here doing its thing but potentially eroding really badly unless we do something about it which is what I talk about a lot <laughs> in my job. How would you describe Kinder Scout to somebody who has never been here before? Okay, so, I mean, there's so much to say, isn't there, on so <laughs> many different levels. I mean, one thing I'd say is you see um, kind of depictions of the mountains, and mountains are kind of pointy and triangular, but Kinder's not. Kinder's a big plateau. And it's huge, you know, and it's got all these kind of different facets to it. So it's big and flat, and then it's got a, a kind of... You can walk round the edge of it, and the edge is really pronounced. Um, and so if you walk round it, which I have done once, and that's another story, because it got dark and we weren't back yet, but we, we were fine. Shouldn't have spent so long in the cafe beforehand. <laughs> um, but you can walk round the edge of it, and... You can look down, 
from one side you can look down and see Manchester in the distance from the other side you can look down and see the you know the whole of the Hope Valley it's it's right in the middle of of the country and it's a big flat plateau and where we are now we're, we're you can't see anything we're sat in a gully <laughs> a gully is it's a kind of mini valley that's um happened because of erosion uh we're surrounded by high kind of walls of peat about i don't know three meters high and it's it's kind of it's just kind of weird we're just kind of in a lovely little enclosure really <laughs> um so it depends kinders kinders all sorts of things um it's got a, you know it's got huge beautiful waterfalls it's the the rock is gritstone which is a very very special rock especially to climbers and the stream that we've just walked up is kind of you're you're almost walking on the bedrock it's just this kind of smooth bit of lovely gritstone and the water's just flowing over it there's just so much to say isn't there like it's all sorts of things but the bit we're sat in now is really fascinating to me because where we are is a hole in what would have been a continuous expanse of bog and the bog surface was at some point in the past was kind of almost exposed um, to the elements because some of the vegetation that was growing there was damaged. That meant that the water could start forming channels and gradually the water has completely eroded this bit. So we're now sat in a gully, which is kind of like a mini valley. It's about, the peat's about three metres high the gully is probably about three meters wide and a couple of hundred years ago this would have just been peat we where we're sat would have just been peat and so though it's beautiful though it's really cool it's quite weird it's actually kind of a, a real demonstration of how damaged this plateau is and how much peat has already been lost and so yeah it's kind of it's just quite weird and now sat here the, the most of the sides of the gully are vegetated so that's a really good sign it means the the um, erosion will have kind of been halted but it's still kind of a, a it's a damaged landscape that you wouldn't necessarily know unless you kind of have heard that whole story and have really got your eyes open to to what's happening here so yeah I don't know I could go on and on <laughs> <laughs> Can you share the story where you walked into the dark when you went walked around the edge? Oh yeah, I can. Um, <laughs> so you know, every every person who goes outdoors has um, a kind of journey of experience, and I suppose I was less experienced back then. I turned up. I remember it was February. I was a teacher at the time. It was February half term. So it was still, you know, quite dark in the evenings and a friend, me and a friend came here and we decided to walk around the perimeter of Kinder. But I, with my love of cake, decided that we had to stop at the cafe beforehand. Um, so we had a really nice um, flapjack and then set off in quite a leisurely manner. I mean, I don't know what time it was, but it was probably around lunchtime and we came up ringing Roger we went across the three minute crossing 
and over to the north edge and there was snow on the ground. We didn't really know where we were going. I mean, we might have had a compass. I don't know if we knew how to use it. We had, we definitely didn't have head torches. And we got to the north edge, which is kind of the far, you know, the kind of far bit, like the kind of, it, that was the point where it was kind of like, right, well, do we head back the way we've come? Or do we keep going and complete the circuit? And I think my friend was a little bit less keen to complete the circuit, but I was like, come on, let's do it. So we carried on and we just weren't very equipped. I mean, I don't think we were unsafe, but we, we didn't really have much food and um, we definitely didn't have torches and it was going to get dark. So we just had to really rush. And I remember her making me run and I wanted to stop for a snack. And she was like, no, keep going. So we pretty much ran all the way, you know, the bit where you're kind of going from the north edge past the downfall. Mm. I mean, not fast, but kind of just jogged. And we were really rushing the whole way back. And we knew that once we get, once we got to um, Jacob's Ladder, that we'd kind of, as long as we were on Jacob's Ladder, by the time it got dark, we knew we'd be all right. And we did, and, we, and it was fine. But it was just one of those days out where you're kind of like, oh yeah, we bit off a bit more than we could chew. <laughs> And yeah, next time maybe we'll remember to bring a head torch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I take I take one out now, even if I'm going out in the morning, just yeah, in case, just in case, just in yeah. case I decide to go out a bit longer. If I come across something and I'm yeah. trying to get into the habit of yeah, always taking it, especially this time of year, obviously. Um, yeah, so it sounds like a very memorable it experience. Was, yeah, yeah, and it was funny, you know. It wasn't kind of we weren't we weren't panicking, but just one of those times when. Yeah, we could have probably been a little bit more prepared or just set off a bit earlier, <laughs> just left ourselves a bit more time. <laughs> what information about Kinder Scout fascinates you? Okay, well, I think I've kind of alluded already quite a lot to the restoration work that's happening up here and to the the peat and all the kind of stories around peat. So I suppose the the really fascinating thing for me is the way the the kind of the trajectory that it was on before organizations like the National Trust and subsequently Moors for the Future Partnership have been doing to reverse the damage and so I suppose it's the story of how the damage happened and why and then the story of all the efforts that have been going on to reverse that damage. So in terms of kind of geography, we're, we're, Kinder is, like I said, you can see Manchester from the top of Kinder, from, you know, kind of from the north and the um, west edge. Manchester was a huge industrial centre. It was full of um, coal-fired factories for you know years and years for for the industrial revolution and it was just pumping out all this horrible smoke and pollution and obviously you hear from people that lived there what it was like and you see the art from those days and I've heard stories of people coming up to places like this you know hikers walkers coming up and getting home and their clothes being black with um, tar because that's how much smoke was coming out. So I think it's really, I don't know, some of those stories, you kind of, they kind of feel unbelievable. Sometimes it feels almost that people are, are exaggerating, but 
what happened up here was that the um, the, the sphagnum moss, which is that key bog building moss, is so susceptible to airborne pollution because all its it doesn't get its nutrients. It's not like something like heather, which is kind of nice and woody and sturdy and it gets its water from its roots sphagnum gets everything it needs from the air basically and from the from the rain so it takes um, its leaves take in water and so they're just as soon as that imbalance happens and as soon as that acid rain um, starts falling the sphagnum is really really um, vulnerable and so that living bog layer was basically just kind of killed off and if you like I said before, the patch um, up on the north edge of Kinder that's been left bare, if you imagine, you know, I, I can't remember it before. Well, I can, I've got those memories of being kind of jumping down those gullies. But if you imagine a patch like that that just has peat, hardly anything's growing. And if you imagine it was all like that, and then you see the difference that's been made by kind of innovation... You know, no one, no one really knew how to restore these areas. People were try, you know, people tried experiments. People have tried all sorts of things to make those changes. And over the years, you can see now if you go to um, the 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 sites that have been restored, you can see the difference. And I I I just find it fascinating because it's such a journey. You know, it's kind of, it's going from something that is really decimated to something that's being fixed, you know, and it's still, it's still a journey because to fix it completely is going to take years, Mm -hmm. but kind of that damage has been halted and there's a lot of work to do to get it into a state where the, the sphagnum is back there and it's growing, but we've got a site where we've planted as much sphagnum as we can to kind of try and almost fast forward the restoration process and then measure those differences. And the science that's going on up there, I mean, there's so many measurements being taken. They're measuring the water table, they're measuring the water that comes out. So the, so the water table is the depth of the water to the surface and I mean the word bogs a giveaway it should be really the water should be really close to the surface and so it's it's kind of trying to see the changes that are being made um, by doing that kind of fast forward and it's it's really astonishing the difference that it's making Um, but it's also just there's there's just a lot more to do so yeah does that kind of answer your question yeah absolutely (laughs) so why is the work of moors for the future important for kinder scout i know that the work is much further reaching than just this landscape yeah but why is it so important for this mountain that we're sitting on I think most people would agree that Kinder Scout is kind of, it's just one of the biggest expanses of peat. You know, it's one of the big, alongside kind of bleak low, it's one of those big plateaus that's just covered in peat. And I mean, I don't know how much peat is here, but you can you can see, you know, just in front of us, you can see a kind of big wall of peat 
and that just shows the volume of peat that's up here i think it's it's also important because of the story it tells you know it's such an iconic mountain and it's so it's so well loved and i think just being able to tell the story of kind of what's happened here over the years and all those different you know people are interested in kinder for all sorts of different reasons and i think this is just one part of the story but i think it's a really important part because if we didn't do anything if we hadn't done anything and if all those partners in moors for the future partnership hadn't kind of banded together and pooled their expertise and pooled their resources we'd be looking at a very very different landscape and we'd be looking at a really bleak future as well i mean the the natural progression of doing nothing at all would be that all the peat would go eventually i i mean i i don't know how long it would take but you know you, once when you see erosion of peat happening you know in the summer when it's dry and you can kind of see it almost flaking away it wouldn't take that long and you'd be down to bedrock and so when we walked up and we saw the bedrock and the stream flowing along it's really beautiful you know it's this kind of flat plateau of gritstone but yeah the natural progression if nothing was done we'd be on a flat lump of rock it would be just completely different so yeah you know in terms of what we've got up here in terms of the the vegetation that's growing and in terms of the wildlife that supports the amount of kind of the you know the mountain hares the things that when you come up kinder it's so special to see the grouse the the common lizards um the lovely little caterpillar that i don't know there's the, these fox moth caterpillars there wouldn't be anywhere for them to live it would just be it would be just bare rock so yeah it's it's just i i don't know if people realize that if we didn't do this work then that would be the logical end point so yeah it it would be a very very different place i think and how so for people who are, you've told me about this um when we had our day out with peak district national park how does it help in terms of carbon capture what's the job of the peat Okay. So peat is about 50% carbon. So it started so it's sphagnum moss and all the other bog building plants that live in a bog are like any plant they take in carbon dioxide as just that's what they do to grow. That's what builds plants. In a waterlogged place like a bog instead of rotting once they die instead of rotting away they kind of just stay there and so that's that so they kind of they semi decompose but they don't rot so they don't um they're not subject to the processes that would happen to in a kind of a woodland uh where microorganisms and fungi break them down again and that's because they're in a waterlogged slightly acidic kind of anaerobic environment so what happens is they just kind of stay and that's what peat is it's just dead plant material and so over the years that bog just gradually grows and grows and grows and so this deep peat that we've got here is the result of thousands of years of 
plants just dying and staying where they are and that's all it is and so it's the it's, it's thousands of years worth of carbon dioxide being taken in from the atmosphere and then just kind of fixed and put and stayed put so in when these bogs are being eroded that carbon is being exposed back to the atmosphere it's being exposed to forces that will turn it back into greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide and eventually back into the atmosphere one way or another so there's two things going on the first thing is that it's a, it's a store of carbon dioxide and if it was if it's in bad condition then it's an emitter of carbon dioxide and a lot of the peatlands in this country are emitters of carbon dioxide at the moment because they're in bad condition and so what we're trying to do um, as a partnership is halt that process so it's not necessarily about capturing carbon it's about stopping carbon emissions from peat and then the second bit is once you can get that peat and once you can get that um, living bog layer back over time they'll they'll come they'll become carbon sinks again so peatlands in really good condition overall they're taking carbon in and they're and they're locking it away and they could be locking it away forever so just like coal and natural gas it's kind of that keep it in the ground type thing and peat's no different you know in some places peat's harvested and there's you hear a lot about that in the media at the moment which is brilliant peat doesn't tend to be harvested around here but because it's in such a degraded state it's it's open to the elements and so what we're trying to do is we're trying to lock it away and we're trying to get it back into the condition of wet boggy and covered in that all-important sphagnum moss and eventually that will start getting it back to the state where it's taking carbon in um, and helping fight that uh, fight the climate change um, but it's I think I'd, I'm really rubbish at remembering numbers but I think peatlands um, contribute to kind of one or two percent of our total of the UK's total carbon emissions so it's it's a significant amount then there's then there's the kind of there's the kind of secondary factors you could say so as a result of climate change we know that we're getting a lot more extreme weather we're getting hot hot dry summers and that's likely to continue so getting peatlands back into getting these areas like kinder back into wetter condition is really really important the wetter they are the less susceptible to wildfires they're going to be um, the wetter they are the more likely the right plants that are going to be growing can have a chance because they're less likely to dry out and also the heavy rainfall um, which we're seeing more and more of really kind of extreme storm events a lot of the rainfalls up here we're in the hills. Um, we all remember doing the water cycle at school. And when the rain falls heavily on these hills, depending on what it, de what it falls on can really affect what happens to the water in those flood events. So when you've got, when you've got bare peat, it's very, very smooth and um, the rain just uh, runs off really, really fast. When you've got 
stuff growing, especially a moss like sphagnum moss that absorbs water, it slows the flow. And it's, it's really significant how much it can slow the flow. And so it all contributes to a reduced flood risk in the valleys. And we're, you know, on Kinder, we've got places like Glossop, which has flooded um, because of where it is. You know, it's right there in surrounded by hills. And so as much vegetation as possible, um, the more vegetation you've got, the more it will slow the flow at source. So that's another huge reason for doing it. And also water security. So the more well again you know that where we are if you think about where the reservoirs are you know you've got kinder reservoir over that side you've got um the lady bower and derwent and howden reservoirs over that side they're reliant on a steady flow of water if you've got this kind of flashy rainfall that then all the water um whizzes down and it's full of peat because that peat is susceptible to erosion bad news for all kinds of reasons bad news for water quality and also the reliability of the water flow so when you've got healthy peat and healthy bogs the water's held up here for longer but it's it's gradually being released and so it's a much more stable system so it's really important for our water security which is becoming more and more of a of a issue as climate change kind of gradually gives us these much longer drier summers um, it's going to be a problem in the future and again the more we can do now to fix it the better so all kinds of secondary reasons as well for kind of doing it that are linked to climate change it's really interesting to hear about it because I think as a walker myself and I'm sure some people listening as well I think you tend to think oh the nice you know a nice dry day or you can even walk a bit off the paths upon um kinder scout and you're not going to get soaking wet feet you know it does it does really dry out and as a walker i think you often think that's a good thing yeah but actually what we're hearing from you is that it needs to be wet up here it's really important so if people are wandering a little bit off the main paths and they come across these piles of stones or they find this um these strange plastic structures <laughs> yeah kind of stuck in the in the peat what are they finding when they come across those so those are um they're gully blocks that's what we call them so i don't know if your listeners will all be familiar with what we mean by a gully but it's these small erosion valleys and so a gully block it's just a mini dam and they tend to be, um, you tend to kind of put a lot of them in one gully. So they'll be, you know, a few metres apart and they'll be in a kind of series. They're made of different types of materials. So like you say, um, there's ones made of kind of corrugated plastic, um, which we don't tend to use as much anymore. There's these, like you say, piles of stone and they are just literally just a pile of stone um, put in the bottom of the gully and they are there to slow the water down and keep it on the hill and it's kind of so you know the gully systems are kind of like a funnel for the water and what we're trying to do is we're trying to block up that funnel to keep as much water on the hill as possible for as long as possible there are other types of gully blocks so we also in certain places probably not so much up here on kinder because again it depends on the moor and it depends on what's there but 
we use peat so we will use diggers to to create peat dams and actually you can see those on the there's quite a few of those on the other side so on the Pennine Way going from Snake Summit towards Kinder there's quite a few literally right by right by the path there and then also timber so and heather bales so all they are doing is they're there to slow the flow of water and just try and keep it up here they it we use different techniques depending on the conditions so if the gully is eroded all the way down to bedrock that's where you'll tend to find the um the stone dams um and what people might come across is that the stone dam has been made but then behind it you can see that the peat has kind of accumulated behind the stone dam and that just shows that slowing the water down means that the water is going slower so it can then release its load of peat so all that peat that would have been being washed off the hill is stopping there and then in the best case scenario you'll then see stuff growing on that peat so you're beginning to kind of almost see the results of stopping that peat keeping it there and then if something's growing on it all the better you've kind of seen a bit of a change and a bit of an improvement and for people who are who find themselves following the pretty much non-existent path from Crowden Tower over to Kindergates if they come across these giant bags for life <laughs> what are they finding when they see those <laughs> giant bags for life i like it um they are seeing so those bags tend they're the bags that we use to transport materials up from wherever they're coming from onto the hill there's pretty much only one way you can get this stuff up here and that's by helicopter so it depends on what we've been doing but that would so the techniques include flying those materials to make gully blocks up here so it might be for wooden dams the stone dams aren't flown up in bags for life they're flown up in what I would call a bathtub it is just literally like a metal bathtub and the stones are, are put into the bathtub at the bottom flown up and then one end is released and they're just dropped straight into the gully there and then and then you just have to shape it a bit and there you've there you've got your dam but also um, the other materials that we bring up here would be heather brash and that is chopped heather um, that's been harvested from a moor that's got got loads of heather on it and that is spread by hand so we bring it up here in the big bags um, then it's spread by hand, kind of using rakes and pitchforks. And that's to cover bare peat with a kind of a layer. It's a bit like putting a putting a plaster on a wound. You've got bare peat and then you spread the heather brush over it. And it's got a number of functions. It protects the peat from erosion. It kind of um, forms a little bit of a microclimate of warmth where seeds can start to germinate. Um, and it also contains seeds so heather brash contains heather seeds it might all also contain fragments of sphagnum moss it might contain fragments of other bits of plant and so it's kind of starting to bring life back and bring bring plant growth back Um, and alongside that we would be spreading seeds grass seeds that help 
kickstart the process of, of basically plants growing. The seeds, once they germinate and grow, their roots will start to knit together and, and stop the peat eroding more. And that kind of forms the basis of the beginnings of getting it back into a really good um, habitat. So the grasses tend to not be moorland grasses. They tend to just be fast-growing grasses. But then, over time, depending on where you are, we'll try and bring back moorland species. So that might be through plug planting, including planting sphagnum moss, but other, um, other moorland species as well. And that kind of depends on where you are on the moor. So, yeah, those are, those are what those bags for life are. Another strand of our work is footpath work. So that it might have, they might have also been transporting the, the big paving slabs. So, yeah, I'm not sure about those, those ones. Probably, yeah, probably either heather brush or, yeah, or dam- materials for damming. And people might well have seen the helicopters coming and going as well. Yeah, I remember um, when I was out running one day and it, um, there was one that just kept going back and forth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was sort of trying to race the helicopter. Yeah, and that's, that's what they might be doing. And again, the, other, the, the seed is all spread with a helicopter. So that's just in a hopper whizzing round and, um, grad- and kind of dispersing that seed from a height. How can people help to take care of this landscape and also get involved if you know where possible? So there's lots of so there's there's the very basic ways that anyone can help and that is things like well my my absolute key thing is people being fire aware. It's not okay to have fires in this landscape at all and unfortunately some people just don't realize that. Um so don't bring fires don't bring barbecues it can be really really you could you could cause so much damage with just one careless cigarette or match or barbecue and for me that's really important if someone you know just just spread the word just spread the word about being fire aware because it's a tiny action that could have such a massive impact and I think what people don't know is that peat can catch fire and smoulder for days or weeks um, or even months underground and then pop up somewhere else where it's dry and set fire to the vegetation elsewhere. So it's really important to be fire aware. It's being aware, especially in the spring, of the animals that live up here. So again, something that people just don't realise is a lot of the birds that live here are nest on the ground. Well, they can't nest in trees because there aren't really any trees up here. Um, But it's a really, really important special habitat for birds. It's protected for birds because it's such a kind of specific habitat. So we're talking about things like curlew, golden plover... Dunlin, they're waders. They go to the seaside in the winter. They come up here to breed in the summer, and so they're very, very vulnerable because their nests are on the ground, and they, yeah, they're completely exposed. And so, in the especially in the spring and summer, just stick to the footpaths. Just give them a chance to not be disturbed. Keep your dogs on a lead, and just be aware of where you are. You know, there is there the wildlife up here sometimes quite difficult to spot 
sometimes just hiding away but I would say just if you can stick to stick to paths so that you're giving every every all the wildlife a chance to just have its own space in terms of getting involved there is volunteering opportunities for people especially with um, organizations our partners like the National Trust and the RSPB have they they you can plant sphagnum with them um, there's all sorts of volunteering opportunities at the moment we haven't got much opportunity for volunteers but we do have our community science project where people can report sightings of certain animals like well like curlew that I mentioned and various different birds amphibians bees butterflies so keep telling us um, what you're seeing and you can find out information about that on our website which is um, moresforthefuture.org.uk and that that data is really interesting because it will show us the differences in years and it's a quite a long-term data set now so the longer we can keep um, recording informa- information about sightings of these various different species um, the better so yeah uh, yeah but just just spread the word really as well I think people that live around here they don't realize the wealth of just just how special the habitat is you know people people care about the landscape but they don't necessarily realize all those all the things that it's doing for us like the you know reducing flooding storing carbon that it that's the bit where i i it would be lovely for me you know if everyone kind of knew a bit more about that and it would just it kind of enriches the fascination with it i think really absolutely why of all the jobs in the world, why did you choose to apply for a job at Moors for the Future? I, like I said, I'd, I'd, where I was, where I was working um, at Longshore with the National Trust, I'd had the opportunity to come out and it was a, another, you know, fascinating day out. We were out on Bleaklow actually, so just, you know, just across from where we are now. And we were spreading sphagnum and we were it was just one of those days like out in the middle of nowhere horrible weather kind of couldn't see much and it just felt amazing to be part of this kind of huge effort to to turn things around and so I was kind of lucky enough to experience that as a kind of I don't know it was one of those kind of internal volunteering days and yeah I just I just got I got really really interested in the story I just couldn't believe that there were so many different strands to it and yeah it just it just kind of fitted for all kinds of reasons and then you know I was I was really lucky to get the job I was really pleased to get the job and since then it has been I was saying on the way up you know all my colleagues are brilliant it's everyone's inspiring to work with no one there's no kind of dead weight everyone's just up for it everyone cares everyone's got interesting things to say there's a lot of passion and for me that's it's just such a it's always an inspiring atmosphere to work in there's always something interesting happening and there's no negativity really there's just good stuff going on and i'm 
still quite in awe of the 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 scale of what we do and what I hear about you know it's kind of like oh well so and so's off in places you've never even heard of you know moors that you know you you wouldn't necessarily even go to because they're not iconic like kinder but um yeah there's just stuff happening all over and it's always interesting and there's quite a lot of different stuff going on so yeah it's a really really interesting job (laughs) I know that you've worked and traveled abroad and been to various mountain mountainous areas Hmm. looking out here now as far as we can see (laughs) which isn't actually that far (laughs) and thinking where we've been walking today which is up Grindsbrook and along the part of the southern edge what makes you wild about Kinder Scout? I think that's much more of a it's more of an elemental question so forgetting all the stuff about you know the science and the restoration it's just the space and I mean when we were walking up and you walk up Grindsbrook and you're looking at your feet and you're trying not to fall over and then you turn round and you realize that you've gained all this height and you're looking back and suddenly you can see Wind Hill and you can see Stanage and Derwent and you just get that sense of perspective and it's just the space you know where you're suddenly right up there and you're getting you can get here easily i mean it's a hard walk but you're right we're right in the middle of you know we're right in between sheffield and manchester we're on a train line and yet you can be up here the wind's blowing you know the sun's out it is a wild space you know we are somewhere you can really get some big views you can get a bit of perspective you can look down on hills that seem big even you know from Edale and yeah it's just big (laughs) (laughs) and I think that's what's inspiring about mountains isn't it it's the fact that you're you're out there you're you're on top of the world yeah so just that sense of space and and it's it's big and but it's intricate you know there's the little bits and there's so much to see and depending on where you are on kinder you can see different kind of aspects of you know valleys and landscapes and yeah so it's lovely (laughs) oh thank you should we have a cup of tea yeah